Genesis chapter 35, as we make our way uh, through this book. Uh, We come to chapter 35, and I'd like to begin reading for us in verse 16, uh, down to verse 8 of chapter 36. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. Genesis chapter 35, beginning in verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. And the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zebulon, the, the Hivite, and Basamoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboeth. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz. Basamoth bore Ruel, and Oholibama, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for the possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning your son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we pray that as we hear you speaking to us today, that we would not harden our hearts, that you would soften our hearts, that you would convict us of our sins, that you would drive us to Christ and comfort us with the gospel. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, our passage draws to a close a major section of the book of Genesis. The section we've been considering for several chapters was the generations of Isaac, where we considered for the most part uh, the life of Jacob. And so as we draw to a close here, we see many things, but we also begin a new section in the book of Genesis, that is, the generations of Esau. 
And both of these sections really set the stage for Jacob to now assume the role of the covenant patriarch, to be the sole heir and the one to whom God would make good on his promises to give him a people and a place. But as we reach this transitional period in the book of Genesis, there are several questions that come to mind. Would God make good on his promises to Jacob? Would he bless him as he had blessed his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham? What about Esau, his twin brother? Would the older brother serve the younger as the prophecy foretold? Would Jacob have to fight for his right to the land of Canaan? Well, our passage addresses all of these questions as God ultimately will be faithful to bless his servant Jacob. You may recall that we began chapter 35 last week uh, where we saw God give Jacob a call to worship, where he called him to make good on that vow to travel to Bethel, where he had first appeared to him uh, upon his departure from the land of Canaan. He called him to go there and build an altar and give thanks unto the Lord for all that he had done for him throughout his journeys. And Jacob, we saw last week, summoned his family to put away their false gods, to purify themselves and rededicate their, uh, their commitment to their covenant Lord and God. And in return for Jacob's actions, we saw the Lord appear to Jacob to renew, but also to expand upon his covenant promises given to him. Yet in the midst of all of this joyful worship, there is weeping. As we saw last week, as we read of the deaths, uh, the death of Deborah, Rebecca's uh, nurse, and even in our passage today, as we read of the tragic death of Rachel, as well as the death of his father Isaac. In the midst of all of these blessings, we see the curses of the fall. In the midst of faithful devotion, we see human sin and error continue to plague the covenant community. And so as we read of these passages, which of people with strange names living in strange lands so many years ago, I hope the relevance of this passage is not lost on us as it becomes very clear that we inhabit the very same land, the very same cursed and fallen world that these people reside in. And yet we also share the same faith that God one day will make all things new. One other thing to note uh, before we get into our passage is just a, a, a directional note Uh, You may recall when Jacob first entered into the land of Canaan, he dwelled in Shechem, which is in the northern portion of what would become the land of Israel. As he made his journey down to Bethel, or ultimately up to Bethel because it was higher elevation, he was heading southward. Well, Jacob will continue that southward direction as he makes his way down to to Hebron to visit his father before he dies. And as he makes that way southward throughout what would become the land of Israel, he goes through what would become the little town of Bethlehem. And so just keep in mind the, directional, uh, the, the direction that Jacob and his family are making ultimately is a southward direction as he makes his way uh, through this land. Well, the first blessing that we see in our passage today is in verse 16, when we read that as they journeyed from Bethel, and they were still some distance from Ethrath, that Rachel went into labor. Now, this should have caused our eyebrows to raise and our ears to perk up, because we haven't been told that Rachel is pregnant. But the fact now that we read that she is going into labor is good news. 
You may recall in the previous, just the previous blessing, God had told Jacob, be fruitful and multiply in verse 11. More than just a bare command, when God tells somebody to be fruitful and multiply, it also entails the ability to fulfill it. And here we see God making good on that blessing as Rachel, who had been barren, and who had after, only after much heartache and frustration and eventual prayer to God, did God ultimately bless Rachel with her first son, Joseph. But in naming her first son, Joseph, which means may he add, she turns that into a prayer as she asks the Lord for another son. Well, here we see the answer to that prayer. We see the blessing of, of, of Rachel uh, becoming pregnant and going into labor. But in a case of being, be careful what you wish for, we see that the labor that she has is very hard labor. This blessing ultimately is mixed with a curse. Ultimately, the curse that came upon women uh, as a result of the fall. In Genesis 3.16, the Lord said to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. It was uh, not uncommon, as, as a matter of fact, up until very recently in world history, the number one cause of death for women was childbearing. And here we see a very sad and tragic uh, a case of that as Rachel is in hard labor and ultimately will succumb to death. And in verse 17, the midwife tries to console, albeit unsuccessfully, the dying Rachel by letting her know that she's having a son. Do not fear. You have another son. She tries to console her that her prayer has been answered, that she will be able to give to her husband yet another son. And yet taking her last breath, she names her son Ben-Oni, which is probably best translated son of my sorrow. But in the only instance where Jacob names one of his sons, you may recall all the other instances, the mother's whether it be Leah or Rachel, were the ones who named their sons. In the only instance of Jacob naming one of his sons, we see here that he renames his son, not Ben-Oni, but Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. In all likelihood, not wanting to be reminded of this tragic event. From the very moment he first laid eyes on her in Haran, Rachel was all that Jacob ever wanted. He was willing to work seven years in order to obtain her as a wife. And we read that those seven years seemed as only a few days because of the love that he had for her. As it turns out, he would end up working 14 years to obtain Rachel as as his wife, who ultimately was the apple of his eye. He loved her more than anything else. And yet here in the Lord's infinite and inscrutable wisdom, we see that he was pleased to call Rachel out of this life and to take away Jacob's favorite wife away from him. And it's very, it's, uh, very short. Uh, it, it, it's not described in great detail. There's no explanations given. And yet here we see the Lord's uh, hand in all these things. Sadly, Jacob will respond to this ultimately in the wrong way. As all that love and devotion that he had for his wife will be poured into the two sons that they had together, Joseph and Benjamin, thus driving a rift, further rift, in the, in the family conflict. And that definitely is going to come out in the coming chapters. 
Well, we see that. We actually don't have to wait for the coming chapters. We see the rift continue in verse 22. When we read that when Israel lived in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. This is a type of act that isn't even tolerated among pagans, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5. It is a sin not only against the woman who is violated, but also specifically a sin directed against his father. This is actually the same thing that Absalom does as he rebels against his father David in 2 Samuel 16. And we may wonder why on earth would Reuben do such a heinous act? Why would he commit uh, this incestuous sin? Well, perhaps more than just youthful lust, perhaps there is some family dynamic at play. Keep in mind, Bilhah was Rachel's handmaiden. And so by defiling Bilhah, perhaps Reuben wanted to prevent her from assuming the role of the favorite wife in place of his own mother, Leah. And so in all likelihood, some of these things were at play and in Reuben's mind as he uh, defiled Bilhah. And we read in, in verse 22 that Israel, that is Jacob, that Israel heard of it. And yet as with the case of him receiving the news of his daughter's, uh, daughter Dinah's uh, defilement, here too we see that there is no response. All we read is that he heard of it, but we don't read of any sort of response, and we may wonder, how is he going to respond? Where is the moral outrage? What is he going to do as a father? We are left wondering as to Jacob's response and ultimately wondering what will become of Reuben, who is his firstborn, the heir apparent. And ultimately, it's not until we get to the very end of the book of Genesis, not until we get to chapter 49, when Jacob is on his deathbed, and he, as a prophet, begins pronouncing blessings over his son, it's not until the very end that we find out what will ultimately become of Reuben because of this sinful act. And there we see that as he's giving his parting blessings to his sons, Jacob starts with Reuben, and he turns his blessing into a curse because of what he did here. So as with Simeon and Levi, with their actions back in chapter 34, uh, so here with Reuben, the first three born sons of Jacob are all now disqualified from ruling in the covenant community. And yet with the birth of Benjamin, the youngest son, We finally see all 12 tribal heads of Israel, all those men who would ultimately, through them, would become the nation of Israel with its 12 tribes. We see it now complete. And we get the first complete list of the 12 tribes of Israel in verses 23 through 26. As the the sons are listed in order of their mothers and in rank according to uh, uh, the the order in which Jacob uh, married them. So we have the sons of Leah, we have the two sons of of Rachel, and then the two sons of each of the handmaidens, all listed there. And and we notice in verse 26 that all of these sons were born to Jacob, where? In Padan Aram. In Padan Aram. And yet, we were just told 
that Benjamin, his youngest son, was not born in Padan Aram on the other side of the Jordan River, but he was born right here in the land of Canaan. He's born right where it ultimately will be the little town of Bethlehem. And so how can scripture tell us, right after he just told us that he was born here, that all of these sons were born in Padan Aram? I think scripture here deliberately ignores this historical fact to make a theological point. And the point is this, that that the 12 tribal heads of Israel will all get their origin in exile, away from the land of promise. In the very same way that the nation of Israel will be born, not in the land of Canaan, but in exile down in Egypt. So also, in the present day, The church, uh, with the church, the Lord is continuing to gather, preserve, and defend for himself a people, all living in exile away from our heavenly homeland. That's why Peter and James can write to uh, Christians and call them those members of the scattering, of the diaspora. Uh, Peter can say that we are strangers and exiles in this earth in the same way uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. And so here, this theological point, I think, is highlighted by the fact that all the sons are said to be born and put on a rom when, when, in fact, Benjamin was not. But at last, in, chapter, or in verse 27, we see Jacob make his way all the way down to the south to Hebron, uh, or also known as Mamre or Kiriath Arba, to be able to visit his father Isaac before his death. Here we see the Lord making good Yet again, on another promise, as Jacob said uh, upon his departure from the land of Canaan back in chapter 28, he said, if the Lord will be with me and if the Lord will return me to my father's house, then I will worship him. Well, here we see him making the completion of that journey as he's able to visit his father and see him before his death. And most importantly, he's able to come to the very place where not only his father had sojourned, but also his grandfather had sojourned. You see, here he is literally retracing the steps of his father and grandfather, continuing that same journey of faith that the Lord had called him on to uh, to live as a sojourner in the land of Canaan. You may recall this location, Kiriath Arba or Mamre, was the same location where Sarah had died. And Abraham had purchased there a plot of land that contained a cave, the cave of Machpelah, which would serve as the family burial site. And so in all likelihood, the fact that that Isaac is now residing here uh, rather than down in the far south in Beersheba, where we last saw him in chapter 26, the fact that he is now here in Hebron suggests that he had traveled there perhaps in anticipation of his death knowing ultimately that he would die in faith and that he would be buried together with his father and mother and ultimately uh, uh, together with his wife, Rebecca, and uh, the the place where they would uh, be buried in hopes of the inheritance of the heavenly homeland. There we see Isaac has traveled. We read of Isaac's death in verse 28, that he lived 180 years. You may recall back... uh, uh, when, when Isaac blessed his son, uh, Jacob, 
that he was 100 years old at that point. By that time, he had already lost his eyesight. By that time, he was already bedridden, and he was anticipating his death. He felt that death was imminent, and so he wanted to bless his son before he died. Little did he know that he would continue living for another 80 years. He died old in verse 29. I think that's a bit of an understatement. He died old and full of days. Now, although old age can be a blessing, and ultimately it was a blessing that was promised to the people of of, uh, Israel, as the Lord made a covenant with them that if they obeyed his commands, that they would live long lives in the land that the Lord their God is giving them. Although old age can be a blessing, I think it can also be a bit of a curse. It's the longer we live, the more and more we are subjected to the harmful effects of the fall. Those of you who may have shaken my hand this morning may have smelled a bit of Bengay, which was put on my back, which is a sign that your pastor is getting old. And the older you get, the more and more you suffer from the harmful effects of the fall. I think you can ask anyone who is over the age of 70 that getting old is not for sissies. And here, Isaac, as we consider the fact that he had lost his eyesight by the age of 100, that he was bedridden and yet lived another 80 years, we have to wonder if that was indeed a blessing or if, in fact, it was a bit of a curse or a mixture of both, as ultimately all of us, if the Lord should tarry, will succumb to death. And yet, as New Covenant Christians... Although it appears that we are suffering from the curses of the fall, although from external appearances things look bad, we know that the Lord can take those bad things and turn them for our good. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, what we see in the mirror day after day, is wasting away through the harmful effects of the fall. He says, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, the Lord takes the the curses of the fall the things that continue to ravage us and continue to, uh, to destroy our bodies as our outer man is wasting away, he takes those things and he uses them as tools to sanctify us, to make us more like him, to renew our inner man. He takes what is evil and turns it to good. So that what we experience in this life, Paul says, is only a light and momentary affliction. I think only the Apostle Paul could say that of all the things we experience in this life. I could, I most certainly couldn't say that. But the Apostle Paul can call whatever we experience in this life, no matter how bad it is, no matter how painful it is, no matter how uh, difficult it is, it's light and it's momentary. Why? Because when compared with the eternal weight of glory, you can't compare it. It's beyond comparison. And the Lord is using those bad things and turning them for our good because we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, getting back to our passage as we, recruit, as we uh, uh, read of the death of Isaac, you'll notice that uh, as with the death of Abraham, 
The two brothers, uh, once estranged brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, reunited to bury their dead father. So here, the once estranged brothers who reunited briefly previously are together again. Esau and Jacob, listed in order of their birth, are reunited, reunited together again in the land of Canaan to bury their father, Isaac. And yet with Isaac's death and Esau back in the land of Canaan, we start to ask some questions. We start to wonder if he at this point would want to try to reclaim his birthright, to to claim that inheritance and to assume the role of the patriarch by taking up residence once again in the land. Keep in mind, the death of his father is what he was waiting for in the first place after Jacob had stolen his blessing. He was anticipating and just looking forward to the day in which his father would die so that he could take revenge upon his brother Jacob. And although it appears that he had uh, forgiven him of uh, of past sins, perhaps here, with him returning back to the land of Canaan, that he would want to assume the role of being the heir You also may recall at their last encounter, when they uh, reunited after over 20 years of being estranged, that Jacob had been very deferential to his brother Esau. Remember, he called him my Lord, and he addressed himself as his servant. He bowed before him seven times with with his face to the ground. Would Esau take this as a cue to assert dominance over his brother and thus reverse the divine decree that we read of while they were still struggling together in the womb. What would happen now that their father is dead? You also may recall, as as we are told here in chapter 36, that Esau married Canaanite women. And the Canaanite women bore him children. Where? In the land of Canaan. So in other words, Esau and his wives and his family, they're locals. They belong. They're rooted in the land of Canaan. Jacob's been gone for decades. All his sons, we are told, were born in Padan Aram. And so who really deserves the land of Canaan? Who, from the outward appearances, would be the most natural heir of this land? We're told here in verse uh, verse 6, inexplicably, without any conniving or scheming on Jacob's part, We read that Esau takes his wives, he takes his sons, he takes his daughters, all that had ties to the land of Canaan. He takes everything that he had obtained in the land of Canaan, and he leaves for the hill country of Seir, leaving the land of Canaan all to Jacob. And the reason given is in verse 7, we read that the land could not support the both of them. In the same way with Abraham and Lot, because their possessions had, gone, had, had become too immense, the land was, was not big enough to support the both of them. We read that one of them had to go, and Esau willingly is the one to depart. The fact that, and the fact that Esau had already been dwelling in the land of Seir back in chapter 33, when they reunited for the first time upon Jacob's return, suggests that Esau had made, already made this move in anticipation of the return of his brother. So even before Jacob stepped foot back into the land of Canaan, Esau had already willingly given it up. 
And we may really wonder and scratch our heads, why on earth would he do this? We know that the land of Seir ultimately would, what would become the land of, of, Ed, um, of Edom is much more arid. It has a much more rugged terrain than the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is, as we read of, is a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet Esau takes all of his stuff and he goes out into the rugged, arid terrain. It'd be as if two brothers were, were set to inherit all of Southern California and one of them says, I'll go out into the desert. You can take this. You can take the nice, fertile uh, land. Why would he do this? Ultimately, I think Esau's actions can only be explained by the Lord's sovereign hand. It was the Lord who changed his heart. It was the Lord who changed his heart to enable him to forgive his brother and not exact revenge upon him. And so also, it was the Lord's sovereign hand who changed Esau's heart to cause him to give up the land of Canaan to not even uh, fight for it, but ultimately to go and take the the hill country of Seir. To paraphrase Proverbs 21, Esau's heart was a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so with Esau out of the picture, Jacob now is able to assume the role of patriarch from his deceased father, becoming now the sole heir and the one Uh, to whom the Lord would make good on all these promises, ultimately fulfilling that prophecy that the older would serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And the Lord is making good on his promises to bless Jacob. And yet, as we saw in our passage today, these blessings are mixed blessings. We hear of joy mixed with sorrow. We hear laughter mixed with weeping. We read of the gift of new life marred by the tragic death of a young mother. Such is this fallen and sinful world that we live in. And centuries later, the prophet Jeremiah would recall this story of the death of Rachel, of of, of her crying out tears for her son. Centuries later, the prophet Jeremiah would would evoke this story to portray the sheer anguish and terror which would come upon the land of Israel, which would come in particular upon the mothers of Bethlehem as the Babylonian armies would come in and put their children to death. Jeremiah 31 says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And centuries after that, the Gospel of Matthew would tell us that those words found their ultimate fulfillment with the mothers of Bethlehem crying as King Herod sent in his troops to kill every male child under two years old. And so in the midst of all of this sorrow, in the midst of all of these inconsolable tears, as Rachel And the mothers of Bethlehem are crying because of the curse of death. Unbeknownst to them, we read of another son who was born in the little town of Bethlehem. We read of another son who was born who through his life, death, and resurrection would begin to make all things new. And ultimately, that's why we as New Covenant believers... Even though we continue to mourn, we do not mourn as the world does. 
as those who have no hope. But we mourn with hope, knowing that Christ Jesus has defeated death, that Christ Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation, and that we are united to him by faith in that he has begun the process of making all things new. So we can look forward to the day as we read of in Revelation 21 where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen? Let's give thanks.